The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Sportbox, and these are your headlines. China ratchets up the rhetoric against the U.S. President Xi Jinping blaming the West for suppressing his country's development, while Beijing's new top diplomat warns both countries could be on a course for conflict. We firmly oppose any forms of hegemonism and power politics and firmly oppose the Cold War mentality, camp-based confrontation, and acts to contain and hold back other countries' development. Chinese imports and exports slump at the start of the year as slowdown fears and supply snarl-ups overshadow the country's exit from zero Covid. Meanwhile, uh, Wall Street bosses Brian Moynihan and Jamie Dimon say they are cautious on the outlook for the US economy, whilst the Fed Chair Jerome Powell prepares to testify before Congress, his first public remark since January's hot inflation print. And the Reserve Bank of Australia hikes rates by 25 basis points, but softens its forward guidance, lifting the ASX index while the Australian dollar retreats against the greenback. So welcome to the program. Let's kick off with the focus on the NPC in China. Chinese President Xi Jinping has accused the US of trying to suppress China and its development in unusually direct criticism at the National People's Congress annual session. She said Western countries led by the US were deliberately bringing, quote, unprecedentedly severe challenges to Beijing's development, according to state media reporting of that event. China's new foreign minister, Qin Gang, says relations with the US have, quote, left a rational path, while warning of further conflict and confrontation if Washington doesn't hit the brake. In his first press conference since becoming foreign minister, Chen accused the U.S. of acting with the presumption of guilt in regards to the balloon incidents earlier this year. He also said China is pursuing stable relations with other countries, including Russia. Chin said Beijing will continue advancing its own interests. We will take it as our mission to defend China's core interests. We firmly oppose any forms of hegemonism and power politics and firmly oppose the Cold War mentality, camp-based confrontation and acts to contain and hold back other countries' development. We will resolutely safeguard China's sovereignty, security and development interests. Chinese exports declined further in the first two months of the year, falling 6.8% compared to a year earlier. Imports also fell by 10.2% on an annual basis, which was more than analysts had expected. With a roundup of all the latest uh, from the NPC and this trade data, let's get out to Sam. Morning, Sam. Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, what this data spells out is that we are continuing to see challenges, certainly for the Chinese economy, moving into 2023. And this sort of, I suppose, highlights that the, the recovery uh, is going to perhaps be slower than expected. It is really much uh, testing the resilience of that now. It goes to show that China cannot export its way out of slowing growth, uh, certainly at the moment. And perhaps it supports the 
case for setting that fairly modest and conservative GDP growth target of around 5%, which the markets didn't seem to be so inspired by yesterday. It did look like it disappointed some investors. And it also perhaps builds the case now for China to very much rely on consumption to mitigate some of the softer overseas demand. Uh, Now, the Chinese markets are getting a chance to react to this data now because it did actually come out later than usual. It came out in the lunch break. So we have seen a pullback when it comes to Chinese equities. We saw some firming up when it came to the offshore currency, but we've seen a pullback when it comes to the onshore uh, spot rate at 693.64 at the moment. So uh, that's what the markets are doing. In terms of what we got at a headline level, um, as expected, China imported and exported fewer goods in the first two months of the year. Now, this data is combined today to strip out the distortions around the Lunar New Year holiday. Now, this is a typically quiet time, uh, certainly when it comes to some of those exports and imports uh, anyway. Um, It was a mixed bag of data, actually. The good news was that the exports didn't fall as much as the markets were expecting. So we got a reading of 6.8% decline. So the market was looking at around 9.4% of a drop. Uh, It was better than what we got in December. But take a look at those imports down 10.2%. The market was looking for around 5.5%. And that was a lot worse than we saw in December at 7.5%. That all brought the trade surplus to $116.9 billion. So ballooning out from what we saw in December and certainly what the market uh, was looking for. Now, the PMIs had given us some clues that things had been improving uh, when it came to the global economic picture in terms of the demand uh, for goods out of China. But what the imports tell us is that we are still seeing weak domestic demand. It speaks to the productivity story over in China and particularly when it comes to the property sector. Guys, back to you in London. Sam, thank you very much for bringing us the update. Taiwan has warned it will not allow repeated provocations from China. The country's defence minister said the military was prepared to fight, although he added that the government will take a, quote, peaceful and rational approach first. His comments come amid reports that Taiwanese officials will meet with U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the U.S. in coming weeks. McCarthy did not confirm whether he would visit Taiwan for high-profile discussions with the government. Speaking to our U.S. colleagues, McCarthy said Washington should focus on ending its trade reliance on China. This isn't about defense. This is also about just not our security, but our technology and our supply chain. What China has done is done these five-year plans to go after certain parts and certain industries, and now we've become dependent upon them. And this is that we can come out with one voice, Republican and Democrat, an American position, that we bring those jobs back to America, but we don't have us dictating these business how to do it, but we don't be beholden to China in any industry. Meanwhile, Chinese authorities denied claims made by billionaire investor Mark Mobius, who said he was unable to get his money out of the country due to government restrictions. In a statement to CNBC, China's State Administration for Foreign Exchange said there was no change in the country's policy on cross-border capital flows, adding it was a matter of internal controls by individual lenders. Karen, we've got uh, David Roche waiting the wing, so I'm going to try and spend as little time here as possible. But look, uh, ostensibly, this will go down as a bullish day, four out of four to the upside for the Dow. But quite frankly, it was flat. You can all see that uh, across the board. It wasn't flat for every single sector. Technology was higher, five tenths of one percent. I'll show you some social media stocks who are getting all excited about potential legislation coming down the pipe uh, against TikTok uh, and what that could mean for domestic players. 
Pinterest uh, up a pen, uh, percent. Uh, but really, it was Snap where the action was up 9.5%. I'll show you the Treasuries. And I'll just make one point here before we get to David as well. And that is there is evidence in the Treasury markets that there is a problem that should be there for equity markets, i.e. the 10 two-year uh, inversion now is now at the highest level since 1991, which, as you well know, should augur some form of recession. We've now got Fed funds futures rates saying we're going to go to 5.5% and probably stay there for a significantly longer period than many expected. You've got the 10-year in itself uh, pottering around 4%, and yet equity markets really don't feel seem to be uh, uh, taking on board at the moment concerns about recession that are coming through in the bond market, concerns about higher rates that are coming through in the bond market. In fact, you're not even seeing it in the corporate bond market, where Jeff was just pointing out to me a series of articles today where actually spreads are not elevated at the moment and companies do seem to be able to uh, raise money at the moment. So look at the dollar crosses as well. Again, we're seeing a, a rising tide on all interest rates across the board. 136 dollar yen, uh, euro dollar 106.81, the pound 120.40. So why are the equity markets not responding to what they're seeing elsewhere? And quite frankly, the answer could be because the data, and we're all supposed to be data watchers now, we're all supposed to be anyway, to be fair, but we're all watching every bit of data. The data isn't showing a recession in the US economy yet. So as such, as a knee jerk, why should the equity markets fall precipitously to forecast a recession that at the moment, despite this aggressive Fed action, most aggressive rate rising we've seen in decades, if it's not showing uh, the, the economy crumbling and the jobs market crumbling, and my goodness me, with the jolts uh, tomorrow uh, and, of course, initial jobless claims and then payroll later the week, we may get some more signs on that. Fact is, why should equity markets take the lead if the data itself is showing things are all OK, despite, of course, what the bond market's telling us? Asian indices look like this. Let's have a quick look. Hang Seng down eight tenths of 1%. Shanghai Composite down five tenths. The ASX 200, um, pretty relaxed about the uh, rate hike we've seen over in Australia from the RBA, five tenths of 1% higher. Opening calls for European markets look thus. Mildly higher for the FTSE and the Zetradax, mildly lower for the FTSE MIB. So... Semi-annual testimony today. Fed Chair Jerome Powell kicks off the two-day testimony before Congress where he will try to convince lawmakers, try to convince them of his ability to cut inflation without crashing the economy. Well, at the moment, he hasn't cut inflation, but he hasn't crashed the economy accordingly. Uh, the central bank has implemented eight rate hikes now over the past 12 months, taking its benchmark rate to 45 to 4.75%. In a key report to Congress released Friday, Fed policymakers said they expect ongoing increases in rates. And of course, now the market's looking for 5.5%, up from 5.1% in December, no less. Wall Street chiefs, however, don't seem sure he'll succeed. But to be fair, they've got a checkered record themselves, haven't they? Uh, Jamie um, Diamond of JP Morgan and Bank of America's Brian Moynihan saying they expect some sort of downturn on the horizon for the world's largest economy. But yeah, previously, let's be honest about it, Diamond was talking about some horrendous storm, I think I recall him saying words to that effect. Uh, Diamond told Bloomberg now, though, that a soft landing could still be possible, but uh, that the Fed will have to do more. Whilst Moynihan suggested corporates are more likely to feel any pain than consumers. Let's get to someone who knows far more about these markets. Uh, David Roche joins us. David is president of Independent Strategy. David, good morning to you. Always a pleasure catching up. Look, let me just park Jay Powell for a moment because I know we're going to get to him and we need to talk about the direction of interest rates in the United States. But I'd welcome your 
opinions on what we've heard from the NPC first. This There was a lot of finger-pointing, finger-wagging from Xi Jinping towards the United States and Western countries, who he accused of holding back China's development. And then the new foreign minister, Qin Gang, basically upping the ante on claims around uh, Western and American um, behavior towards China. Is this just the regular Punch and Judy performance in international politics we can expect? Or has something changed about the way China intends to pursue its foreign policy towards the West? I think things have changed. Two things have changed. One is uh, China now knows that if it achieves growth, it has to achieve it domestically, which means reform, which is not yet undertaken. And it means getting the consumer to spend pots of excess savings, which it is very hesitant to do. China knows that the global order, which you and I grew up with after the fall of the war, this kind of hegemony of the U.S., is now fractured. That we have Russia, China, and a number of unsavory states on one side. We have the Americans, the democratic states on the others. And then we have a whole lot of countries called the Big South, many of whom matter, like Brazil and India, which are kind of using <clears throat> Russian oil, not quite taking Russia's side, but certainly representing a third, a third fragmentation of the world order. And China knows perfectly well that the US will stop uh, China's influence by making sure that the technology gap, which I reckon is around five to 10 years, it will widen to 20. And it will do that by simply interdicting the export from any country, including countries like Holland, uh, which are leaders of the sort of machinery which can be used to design the sort of chips which power your missiles and your G-phones at the same time. The dual use means that you can't export friendly technology. It can just be used in two ways. So it can be ammunition or it can be, it can be in, your, in your mobile phone, but it's not going to happen either way. So, so, so David, I think it is, this is bad news. So, so David, those, those who talk about optimistically a 6% plus growth rate for China for, for 2023, are they, are they talking out of their hat? Those sectors of the economy that depend on Chinese performance, like mining, for example, basic resources, are we going to see them repriced here as China actually disappoints on the growth targets? I think what will disappoint in China is the way the growth is achieved. Uh, I'm not in the school which says that here's another crisis. China can use infrastructure and thus American, uh, Australian minerals to get its way out of it. I think the way that China has to go now is to actually mobilize its own masses to spend their money, trust the government, and not accumulate excess savings. So it'll all happen in travel and, and, and in shops, if you like, and in restaurants, and much less in the heavy-duty stuff, which we are wont to see as the motor of the world economy because it is the motor of the Chinese economy. I think that model is, uh, is dead as a duck. Dead as a duck. David, let me switch to central banking because uh, we're setting up for another data point later this week. We've got uh, the non-farm payrolls report, also Jay Powell over the next uh, 48 hours or so discussing monetary policy. But there is a view out there that we've still got a very tight labour market. You've got central bankers looking for some break in this wage price spiral that we've witnessed. But you point out we're now looking at higher structural inflation. What is the task for central banks from here and what does it mean for markets? 
I think uh, I'm going to start with the markets. Uh, Steve had this uh, wonderment. And when Steve's wonder, uh, then we all have to pay a lot of attention to solving his wonderment. He said, uh, why do equity markets hold up? And if you think about it, central banks have told us, and we already know that inflation is very sticky. It may not be going up anymore as it was, but it doesn't come down as it should. And therefore, it is very sticky. He knows that uh, profits are falling. Therefore, if profits, uh, if the price of a security is calculated using long-term interest rates to discount future profits, theoretically, um, the only reason that uh, equity markets can be actually stable is because the risk premium uh, adjusts. In other words, people remain sanguine about the risk of equities compared to any other asset. And I think that is the reason why in a world in which bonds are crapping out, in which interest rates are going through the roof, uh, and earnings are really not pretty, that is the reason why equity markets don't fall. Because people say it is, when all is said and done, safer than most of the other assets we can buy. That, I think, is the key of what is coming out of of market signals. I don't expect it to change very much. Yeah, that is an interesting comment, given all the alternatives the market's now looking at and the new acronyms they've come up with. But let me ask you about the background around energy, because we are also counting down to the ECB. And I looked at one of your calls about going long EU gas and global LNG. That smells like uh, still tricky inflation tasks for the ECB. It, it, it does. But remember, in Europe, it is such a socialized economy that they acted on g- gas going through the roof on Europe having a what I would, what I would call it a cultus winter, a very cold winter with people kind of clutching at their fur coats in the street, the kind of Putin image of, uh, of Europe going to hell in a handcart. Well, not to hell because that would be warm, but to some ice ridden place in a handcart. And it never happened. Now, why did this not happen? It happened uh, for two reasons. One is they managed to get the reserves of gas up to 90%. And secondly, of course, of course, they introduced lots of measures which shielded the rich and the poor without any targeting whatsoever from the rising price, price of gas. So actually, people came out of it pretty well, which is what the, you know, what the European economist is telling you. Now you face a new problem. Part of the solution to that was getting lots of LNG from the United States and Asia. Now China needs that LNG. Part of the solution to that was the weakness of the economy where we use less gas. But now the, 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 the level of inventories in those stocks that saved Europe are, are heading down through 60% towards 50%. And in France, in a couple of weeks, it'll be 40%. It has to be filled again in much more difficult circumstances than last year because there will be no Russia, even at the beginning of that period, supplying any gas. That is the moment when I think Europe starts to feel that its energy policy is not working very well. And of course, the, reserve, the, the actual impacts on the market are lagged by the way the governments go about doing things. But the impact on confidence once European gas prices called TTFs start to rise again, once LNG starts to rise again, I think people will start to worry about what is really going to happen next winter, not the winter we're just getting out of. There's a lot of truth in that, David. Lovely to see you today, my old friend. Look, my wonderment continues on these markets. So I just want to go back to that, if I may, as well. Why 
Do you do you think, okay, there's a lot of people out there who think we should be crashing. A lot of people out here hate the valuation of the S&P at current levels. A lot of people out here think that credit spreads are too tight and that actually the realism of having rates at 5 to 5.5% by the tail end of this year just hasn't hit the markets. Do you think that penny will drop or actually are they badly wrong? I think on balance, Steve, and with all the detriment and respect I have for your wonderment, I think they're wrong. And here is the reason I can come back on and apologize at a later date why I think they were wrong. There's this marvelous thing called the beverage curve, which is, is, is a curve which shows the relationship between people, the, the number of people getting uh, recruited and unemployment. And when unemployment is very, very low, you get a vertical shift in the beverage curve. It goes straight up, which are all the people getting jobs in services, which really shouldn't be getting jobs probably. And it is treated as the inflationary kicker of the labor market. Now, the big if is this. Can you reduce that vertical part of the beverage curve without hitting the part of the beverage curve which goes sideways and shows big increases in unemployment? It looks like the labor market after COVID, after this, after that, has changed its nature. And that this kind of hockey stick of the beverage curve at the end of this explosion of jobs which could underline a wage price spiral can actually be deflated, got a, done away with in large part without affecting the more horizontal part of the hockey stick, which tells you that in, unemployment has to go through the roof in order to make sure that the Fed's inflation target does not get defeated by a wage price spiral. That, I think, in a diagrammatic form, points to a historical discontinuity. In the past, it was one way. And I think this time, it may possibly be another way. David, uh, my wonderment continues, and it, more so because I talk to you, because I, I, I ask more questions because you raise them. So here's another thing, and, and I take on board everything you just said, and it's absolutely fascinating. But what about debt? What about debt markets? For years, for decades, there are whole generations of traders and youngsters in these markets, David, who don't actually understand that debt plus inflation plus high interest rates could be a toxic mix. Why isn't it yet a toxic mix, taking on board everything you just said about the jobs market? Because of duration. You would be amazed at how many places that deserve to be in trouble with debt are not in trouble with debt because they were clever enough to restructure their debts at very low interests, interest rates for a very long time when interest rates were low. Uh, if you take the emerging markets above the category of those poor countries, South and Sahara, which aren't really emerging at all, but if you take the other countries and you look at what they have been doing, they have been cleverly making sure that they could actually survive a storm of rising interest rates for a while. If you look at the duration of it, let, let's take a favorite place, which everybody loves to hit on the head uh, with the hockey stick or otherwise, Italy. Uh, love the food, hate the finances. Italy is a country, and Belgium is a country, again, love the food, hate the finances, which is busy, busily motoring back to 120, 130, and higher levels of debt, with budget deficits, for example, in, in Belgium, of well over 5% of GDP per year, and nobody even talking about it. Well, why doesn't, don't these countries get hit on the head with their, with their almost... Um, terrible suicidal debt arithmetic and the answer is because they locked it in 
The bad news doesn't really hit the budget in terms of spending and deficits until much later. What hits the budget now is spending for the poor souls who probably never really suffered from the energy crisis of uh, uh, Europe's hunger winter last winter, which never really was uh, happened. That's what's going on. It's a hall of mirrors. But it is not to say that your enormous wisdom is not depictive of reality, because as always, Steve, it is. David, excellent. My wonderment at how you continue to say so many wonderful, smart and interesting things never ceases. Uh, lovely to see you, David. And maybe we'll see you around the Roche, desk. If you can yeah. make it to Brussels, you can make it to London, I'm sure. Uh, David Roche, president. I'm sure. Absolutely. And we always like having you around here, David. Uh, David Roche, of course, president of Independent Strategy. Karen, the Reserve Bank of Australia. Yeah, let's talk about this because uh, I think it's quite key to central banking now that we've seen some slight softening in the labour market. The Reserve Bank of Australia has hiked its cash rate by 25 basis points to 3.6%, its 10th successive hike. However, RBA Governor Philip Lowe softened his hawkish tone, dropping references to further rate increases, saying instead that further tightening will be needed to tamp down inflation. The RBA's softer message has sent the Australian dollar lower against the greenback. <clears throat> Stay tuned to CNBC this morning. Juliana and Tanya will be speaking to Julia Gillard. She is chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and, of course, the former Australian Prime Minister as part of our equity and opportunity coverage. That interview is coming up at 10.45 CET. That was back in the day when they had revolving door leadership in Australia, the same Absolutely. that we had in the UK, wasn't it? They yes, this was uh, a precursor few. to what the UK then saw down the track, yeah. where we churned through a lot of top talent in a very short period of time. Top talent. I think you're being very kind. <laughs> Uh, we've got to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. U.S. lawmakers are set to launch a fresh attempt to tackle TikTok. Uh, we'll have more after the break. Stay with us. Congress in Beijing to Paul's testimony on Capitol Hill. You can stay up to date with all the latest developments by subscribing to the CNBC podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Tesla has cut prices on its more expensive cars, the Model S and X, for the second time this year. The latest price cuts come after CEO Elon Musk said the EV maker has seen, quote, small price changes having big effects on demand. Tesla shares have climbed higher this year after plunging in 2022. A group of bipartisan U.S. senators will unveil a bill to give President Biden the authority to block TikTok and similar companies. Mark Warner, the Democratic chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, told Fox News the U.S. needs an approach to ban foreign technology when necessary, accusing TikTok of taking data from Americans and not keeping it safe. The bill comes amid continued pressure on the social media platform, with a group of 45 state attorneys general demanding material from the company in consumer protection investigations. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. 
or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.